Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Jennifer Chesick, who is author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, How Magic Mushrooms, Psychedelic Therapy, and Microdosing Can Benefit Your Mental, Physical, and Spiritual Health. We will discuss her book and psilocybin. According to her bio, Jennifer is an award-winning freelance science and medical journalist, editor, and fact-checker, and her work has appeared in several national publications, including the Washington Post. She earned her Master of Science in Journalism from Northwestern University's Medal, and she teaches in the journalism and publishing programs at Belmont University. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start with a quick disclosure of a conflict of interest statement. If you have any uh, funding sources or anyone who has paid you to be included in the book, anything that our readers, I'm sorry, our listeners, and I guess listeners and readers should know about. I don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose, but thank you so much for asking. I appreciate that. Of course. Let's start with something really basic. What is psilocybin? I think we all think we know what it is, but it's a it's a it's a type of mushroom. So psilocybin is a compound in what we traditionally call magic mushrooms. So in the uh, psilocybin species, I guess is what we would, or I should say. Um, let me back up. So it's just a type of magic mushroom and psilocybin is the compound that's in there that causes the psychedelic effects. But actually psilocybin turns into what's called psilocin, which is so means that means that psilocybin is a pro drug for psilocin and psilocin is the actual thing that causes the psychedelic effects that we traditionally think of with magic mushrooms. But what it is, is the compound itself is a tryptamine alkaloid and that binds to your serotonin receptor sites and it and then that the the psilocybin or the psilocin that that mimics serotonin and serotonin is a neurotransmitter it's uh, involved with mood digestion uh, sexual function lots of different aspects of things in the body and why are they called magic mushrooms I think because of those psychedelic effects effects that we know about. So, um, you know, you, you might have some visuals that feel really magical. And then, of course, you'll have some changes in brain networks that occur. And that that's what's producing some of the beneficial effects that we're hearing about with PTSD, depression, anxiety, and things like that. The brain changes or the, the network changes are temporary while you're on psilocybin. And your brain obviously reconnects in the same way after that you normally had it after a dose, but you do have some increased um, uh, neuroplasticity after using psilocybin. And so that creates time for a really opportune time for behavior change if you're trying to implement some type of behavior change or change your beliefs about things. And by neuroplasticity, tell us what you mean. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I try not to use too many scientific words, but it, it, neuroplasticity is essentially this time where your brain is, um, you know, growing new neurons and dendrites and just kind of, um, it's almost like as if your brain is flowering or expanding is what it, I should, not expanding in volume or anything like that, but just flowering and growing. Well, that sounds like a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> So if I recall correctly from your book, in 
most of the United States, they are not legal. They are classified in the same category as some pretty strong drugs. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. So yes, psilocybin is currently Schedule One by the Drug Enforcement Agency in the U.S. So they're not legal. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms are not legal federally. However, certain states and municipalities have already started to implement new legislation, and some of it's already in place where psilocybin is either you know fully legal or le or it's decriminalized, meaning that you know law enforcement is not prosecuting offenses with psilocybin. And then in other cases, psilocybin is legal just in certain contexts, such as um, uh, doing psychedelic assisted therapy. So it would only be legal in that sort of context. I don't think we have anywhere where it's just fully legal across the board, any, you know, anything goes. But, um, but states where things are, where legislation has changed is our Oregon. And um, let's see, we've got Colorado. And then there are other like cities and states that are doing things. So DC has decriminalized Washington, DC. Ann Arbor has some certain legalities. And then parts of the New England states are starting to incorporate different legislation. So it's a lot like um, cannabis in the US, except on a smaller scale where we've, um, I, cannabis has either been legalized or decriminalized or um, it's been legalized medicinally or recreationally or both. And across the U.S. right now with cannabis, we have about um, you know, over half the states have done some type of legalization with cannabis. So we're a little bit behind on with psilocybin, but I think we'll start seeing an increase in that patchwork of, of areas across the U.S. where we do have more legalization and decriminalization. Where do the actual mushrooms grow? I don't know if that's the right word. Are they being grown in farms? Are they wild harvested? How do people get their hands on these mushrooms? Sure. Um, so yes, they do grow in the wild in certain con contexts or environmental aspects where they're, they're, they're able to flourish. But most people who are using psilocybin in the U.S. would probably be either growing it themselves, although that is not legal, legal yet, um, only in certain contexts and places. And then um, and they may be getting them from outside sources, usually um, getting them in, in um, powdered form where it's like put into a capsule or sometimes the the actual mushrooms are sold usually in, after the, after they've been dried and then in other ways sometimes psilocybin is infused into chocolate so similar to like edibles for cannabis but again um, you know the legality varies from state to state city to city on all of that you mentioned in the book that the use of psilocybin or magic, magic mushrooms is very old, that it has been part of humankind for a very long time. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So um, traditionally, indigenous communities have used psilocybin in ceremonial contexts um, for healing or just enlightenment and things like that. And I can't really speak to all the different aspects of that. But yeah, thousands of years of history of indigenous community, communities using psilocybin. And then um, the way that it was brought to the U.S., for example, would be that, um, and this is not a not a great story, but Maria Sabina, she was a Mazatec healer in Mexico. And so back in the 50s, a um, Chase executive or JP Morgan Chase executive 
uh, went down, his name is Robert Gordon Wasson. He went down to this village and normally uh, the white man was not allowed to partake in ceremony, but he tricked Maria Sabina into allowing him to participate. He told her that his son was missing and he needed to find him and this was not true. And then um, the only way that she agreed to allowing psilocybin to, uh, for him to participate in the psilocybin ceremony was if he agreed not to share her information, such as her location or her name. But he immediately went back to the States and wrote a, an article for Life magazine. And so the word got out. And then that a lot of people flocked to this village. And although at the time, initially, Maria Sabina was a really revered healer in her community, um, the, the community got upset with her because she thought it was, they thought it was her fault for bringing all of these tours then down to uh, Mexico, but she she certainly didn't want that. So people like John Lennon and Walt Disney were flocking there, lots of just other people that weren't famous. And what happened was that um, the village sort of uh, revolted against her. She was ostracized and her home was burnt down and her son was murdered. So it's not a great story about how um, you know we ended up in the U.S. getting psilocybin. But with all that in mind, Indigenous wisdom, of course, is incredibly important as we move forward with studying psychedelics, especially with psilocybin, because of that history of uh, Indigenous communities using it. And so whenever I talk about psilocybin, I certainly like to bring in concepts of Indigenous wisdom. And so in the book, I did interview an Indigenous wisdom expert. Her name um, is uh, Michaela De La Maico, and she was fabulous and gave me a lot of really great insight. Why has it become so popular? There seems to be a, I don't know if the proper word is rebirth, but there certainly seems to have been an uptake and interest in the United States in psilocybin. What is driving that? Yeah, that's a great question. So before um, the war on drugs, research had begun with psilocybin in different contexts, including for, um, you know, mental health issues. So research had already begun, and I always like to acknowledge that. And then the war on drugs occurred in the U.S. where, you know, Nixon kind of started that, and then or he did start it, and then uh, Reagan took over, and it really proliferated. So research on psilocybin and other psychedelics was really halted at that time. And then, you know, we've had sort of this ability to regain, restart research and, you know, it's just really, um, you know, popular right now, all of this research that's coming out, people are paying attention. And I think in the U.S. especially, we've had this a mental health crisis and that could be a very global health cri- mental health crisis as well. But people are really frustrated with we don't have adequate treatments for some of these things like PTSD, depression, anxiety. Yes, we have medications, but in many cases for people, medications don't work. Therapy isn't enough. These things together aren't enough. And so we're finding through research on psilocybin that it does have a lot of beneficial effects for these issues, especially mental health concerns. And so we just have this flourishing research right now. It's in the media. So I think people are just really excited about the the new possibilities. Are there other countries who have the same attitude or the same studies who are using psilocybin in a similar way, say Canada, the European Union, etc.? 
Sure. Yeah. So Canada and the European Union are definitely doing a lot of research and there are great researchers out there in both of both of those areas. And so, uh, yes, we've got research coming from certainly all over the globe. But I would say the European Union, Canada, the U.S. are doing a lot of stuff. There are other countries, too, I, and I probably don't know all of them or know all about what is happening elsewhere. But I, I see research coming out of, um, you know, especially like Germany and things like that. So I'm really excited about all of that. In what way is psilocybin use different for women than for men? And you also spe specify, um, I'm trying to remember how you phrased it, uh, why don't I let you do it in the book? Sure. Yeah. So I think to start just going back to like, why did I even write this book? Um, when, when I was digging into the research on psilocybin, I learned that in many cases, more women are using some psychedelics more frequently than men are. But it, there's a difference in how women and men tend to use psychedelics. So traditionally, men use psych, uh, psilocybin and other psychedelics more recreationally, whereas women are turning to to psychedelics to self-treat. And the reason for that is that often, at least in the U.S., women's health is one of the last things that's focused on or less thing that, that is studied. And so women often get left behind in the medical system for all sorts of conditions. And they're also more disproportionately likely to get gaslit at the doctor's office, meaning their symptoms aren't taken seriously. They get the wrong diagnoses all the time. It just happens. And the reason for that is that women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until right around the 1990s, somewhere in the early 1990s. And so historically, the medical community was just treating the female body and the male body the same, which is completely not true. And I always like to share this little timeline to illustrate how this, how much how this has had ramifications for women. So um, men in, in 1998, men got a drug for male sexual dysfunction and everyone knows what that drug is, at least in the US, it's Viagra. And at that point in time, the medical community didn't even have a complete picture of you know, the, the sexual organ, the clitoris of the female anatomy. There's all this internal structure to it. And so that didn't happen until 2005. And then fast forward till 2015, uh, that is when women finally got a drug for female sexual dysfunction. So it's a 17 year gap. So that just illustrates a little bit about why women might be turning to alternate ther alternative therapies for different conditions. But what we are learning through research is that likely psilocybin and potentially other psychedelics as well may affect the female body a little bit differently. And the reason for that would simply be because of the menstrual cycle and the female hormones. So it's, there's some initial research to suggest that that estrogen affects the binding at the serotonin receptor sites, which again, uh, psilocybin is a, um, mimics serotonin and activates those uh, receptors. And so um, we pro likely have some context for the menstrual cycle, for example. So what we're learning through case studies and just uh, other you know, preliminary, I would say anecdotal reports and case studies is that likely psilocybin may make um, the menstrual cycle come early if someone you know, does a, a psilocybin journey. It may bring back the menstrual cycle if there's a been a time where it's been absent, and I don't mean related to menopause, but you know sometimes someone who's stressed out or has a condition 
may, their period may stop temporarily. So psilocybin may bring it back and it may also help re-regulate the menstrual cycle if someone's having irregular menstrual cycles. And some of that research is coming out of Johns Hopkins University's uh, Psychedelic Center um, study, Research Center, which I'm really excited about. And the mechanisms of action make do make sense for why psilocybin may affect the menstrual cycle. And it, it does sound like these effects would be likely beneficial. Again, we need more research, but um, the, the, the science behind that or the reason why it's possible that psilocybin affects the menstrual cycle would be that the menstrual cycle occurs along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so what I mean by that is like when one hormone kicks off, it tells another hormone what to do in this sort of feedback loop. But at the same time, we also have another axis called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and that controls our stress response or it's involved in our stress response. And so when we use psilocybin, we are activating uh, serotonin receptors along that axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so again, these two axes overlap, and we can tell that just by their names with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. And so we already know that someone, that these two axes impact each other outside of the context of psilocybin. For example, if we're stressed out, that can impact our periods. If we um, get our periods, that can impact if whether or not we're stressed and things like that. So we know they overlap and they interact, but um, we need to know more about how specifically psilocybin might impact the menstrual cycle. So researchers are still studying that. I'm excited to, to get more research out of it. Um, but likely when we are when we are using psilocybin, it does some, somehow impact that hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so I did talk to, again, I mentioned the indigenous wisdom expert that I talked to. And, um, you know, I think it's important to bring in that information because even though we think of science as the process of doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results, that's exactly what indigenous wisdom people, or I should say indigenous communities have done for thousands of years. So we do have a history of, of usage with psilocybin and specifically for the menstrual cycle. So what the indigenous wisdom expert, uh, Michaela De La Maico mentioned was that if you are doing a deeper journey to potentially do that closer to ovulation rather than closer to your period. And the reason for that is because um, the energy in the body, meaning um, the, the way that we metabolize glucose and things like that is uh, it changes as we get closer to our periods. And um, so we, a lot of people tend to fast before a psilocybin journey, and that can be very difficult to do when you're getting closer to your period, and it's much more accessible to do when you are near ovulation. And this makes sense from a scientific perspective, too, because in that luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, again, our glucose metabolism is changing, and we become a little bit more insulin resistant. So this makes total sense, and I appreciate that she she brought that wisdom to me and, you know, in ceremony in indigenous communities, they don't allow people to, um, to partake in ceremony if they're on, if they're, if they have their period. So, you know, interesting information. And it's important to respect that if you are partaking in a, um, a ceremony with an indigenous uh, facilitator. And then she also mentioned that if you are planning to microdose, she recommends following whatever protocol you're going to follow. There are many protocols out there. Some of the, the two most popular might be the Fatiman protocol and the Stamet stack, which I um, you know, provide details on in the book. But the indigenous wisdom expert recommended 
following whatever protocol you're going to follow for about three months and keeping track of your symptoms related to whatever with your menstrual cycle, or if you've got a condition that, that affects the menstrual cycle to track all of that and see how it, how you respond over the course of three months, rather than just doing it, you know, once or twice, and then um, deciding it's not working for you or deciding it's working for you, you need to probably do that for three months. So that was a long answer to your question. What does the use of psilocybin mean for women who are in perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause? Yes, great question. So, um, so just to explain those terms, perimenopause is you, usually starts about a decade before you actually have the um, have menopause, and menopause occurs when your period has been absent for a year. So then, and and once you reach that mark, I mean, menopause is really just a threshold. You're in postmenopause. So I just always like to illustrate those terms. But as we get into perimenopause, of course, we may have classical symptoms, like classic menopause symptoms, such as hot flashes, uh, low, lower libido or female sexual dysfunction, um, let's depression. These are all very common things to occur in menopause. So I do see a lot of potential for psilocybin to help with these issues or these these symptoms that may occur with depression. So even if you've never had depression before or really haven't dealt with that, it may crop up during perimenopause and in, in once you re and of course at menopause or even in postmenopause. And one of the first things that will happen if you go to your doctor and you say, I'm dealing with depression and I'm likely in perimenopause, they'll probably put you on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that's an SSRI and it's an antidepressant. So, um, you know, these are you know, pharmaceuticals and they're great medications. And I, when I talk about them, I don't want to disparage the, those medications, but they do have side effects. One of those side effects could be low libido or female sexual dis elements of female sexual dysfunction. And so a lot of women are reticent to jump on an SSRI because it will, even though it might help with the depression, it may exacerbate other symptoms, again, such as female sexual dysfunction. So in looking at psilocybin as um, something that you can try for your depression, what research is showing that is that you can use it essentially once and have some pretty lasting effects. Now, it will vary person to person, and research studies have given us different results, but it's poten there's potential for it to last for at least up to a year, even a six months to a year. So psilocybin is something that you might choose to do once a year, twice a year, maybe four times a year, something like that. Whereas with an SSRI, you're going to have to take that every day to have the, the adequate results. And again, those have side effects. With psilocybin, you don't have those side effects. It doesn't blunt your libido. The other thing it doesn't do is, so when we think about a, an antidepressant, um, those typically blunt your mood. Not only do they blunt your, your lows so you don't get super depressed, they also blunt your highs, which impacts your ability to really lean into joy. Psilocybin does not do that. It doesn't blunt your mood. In fact, research shows it makes you feel more okay with those highs and lows. So it could be a really great um, option for someone who is dealing with depression. Now, again, people do microdose, which is something that you do much more regularly, which is totally fine, but it doesn't have those same side effects as an SSRI when you are, um, you know, taking that over and over again. The other thing with SSRIs is that they're difficult to wean off of, but with psilocybin, you really don't have to do that. So, uh, so yeah, I see a lot of potential there in, in terms of perimenopause. And then in terms of the female sexual dysfunction, 
two things that are protective against female sexual dysfunction, and those are uh, having a positive body image and then also having uh, intimate partner communication with your sexual partner. So in terms of the body image, we do know from research studies that psilocybin can help with that. The studies, the clinical trials that are being focused on right now are specifically for eating disorders and very specifically anorexia nervosa is one of the ones that's, that's the furthest down the line in the clinical trial realm, but we are getting some really great results out of that. And so this makes sense as to, you know, that, that psilocybin would help with body image. And then intimate partner communication is again, the other thing that's protective against female sexual dysfunction. And we do know that psilocybin does facilitate a lot of um, connectivity or intimacy with, um, with, you know, your intimate partner, it can. And that doesn't mean that you have to be with your partner doing psilocybin and then have sex or anything like that. You can just go off, do a psilocybin journey on your own, and then likely have um, this this intimacy facilitated a little bit more, even if your partner is not present. It, it just does something for you to make you feel more connected. So I see potential for psilocybin to really benefit people with female sexual dysfunction as well. And then the other thing is that once we get into um, menopause, if we've had adverse childhood experiences in our um, childhood, though that can impact our perimenopause, menopause experience in terms of it can exacerbate symptoms. So adverse childhood experiences are anything that came up with it that was really traumatic as a child. So things like, you know, if your parents got a divorce or if there was abuse or neglect in your home or if you uh, lived through poverty or systemic racism in your community, all these things can really be um, what are called adverse childhood experiences. And those actually change our stress response and how our body handles cortisol, and that which is the stress hormone, and that lasts into adulthood and beyond. And so um, what, we're, what we're learning is that psilocybin certainly has the ability to help us manage trauma or reprocess trauma which potentially could calm down that stress response and then make us have, help us have less, um, less severe symptoms in menopause. So there's a lot of potential there, or I should say perimenopause. So there's a lot of potential there for that whole menopause trajectory with psilocybin, which I'm really excited about. One of the things that I was surprised to discover is that it's a mild stimulant. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it does. Uh, so it's not something you want to take and then think you're going to go to sleep, of course, because it does, again, activate along that stress response. And it does have a little bit of a stimulant effect in that it will elevate your heart rate, it will elevate your blood pressure slightly, uh, things like that. These are temporary. Once you come down from psilocybin, uh, those things will return to normal. But it may also impact your sleep that night. So for example, when I did my journey, um, I did I did a journey sort of in the early evening, and that did make me go to bed much later than normal because of that uh, that sort of stimulant effect. Now, that doesn't mean that it's like drinking a cup of coffee. Um, you know, you're not going to be uh, bouncing off the walls if you're really super caffeine sensitive or stimulant sensitive. It's just more, it does activate some things in the body that are more stimulating. You've talked about journey and coming down from the journey. And that is something in the book that you say is important to treat with great care, that you should be very careful about where you are physically when you 
try psilocybin for the first time or I think even on a regular basis. Tell us a little bit about that. You, you talked about your experience in the book and why it was so important that you make sure that it was under the right circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So there there are some terms in psychedel in the psychedelic industry that are important for people to know. And the first is set and setting. And this is really rooted in indigenous practices, but set and setting it involves your mindset when you're going into a, a deeper journey. So setting intentions or really what we're learning through research is it's not, it's not necessary to set an intention of, I want to cover this sort of thing during my journey. I want to work on this specific trauma. The better intention likely to set is that you're just open to the experience. You're open to whatever the mushroom wants to teach you to, so to speak. And so that, that's really important in terms of your mindset. So going in with it into a, a journey with a really strong mindset of almost this, this idea of surrender is, is helpful. It's not a great idea to do psilocybin if you're really stressed out, if you're, um, if you're you know, tense about a bunch of deadlines, you've got a ton of things going on, you will not be able to relax into your journey or it might be much more difficult. Setting is of course your environment. So who's around you? Where are you? Are you inside or outside? And there aren't necessarily set rules for that. It's really what more resonates with you. You might be most comfortable sitting in a room with you know, a yoga mat and a bunch of comfy cushions or on your sofa or something in your bedroom, wherever. Other people love to be outside in nature, but where, wherever you are, it's important to, um, to really focus on that setting and making it as a comfortable of an environment of, of where you feel really safe. So, um, you know, you wouldn't want to be just alone in the woods if that might freak you out or something like that. Um, it's really great idea to have a trip sitter with you. That would be a friend who, um, or a practitioner who is sober, not partaking in the mushroom, but really sitting with you and not interfering with your journey, but being there for you just in case something difficult crops up to help keep you calm in that moment. That can be really beneficial and just to generally keep you, help keep you safe. So these are some things that that I like to talk about, but additionally at the, um, as you're coming down from your journey. So when you take psilocybin, you're going to peak at one point and then you'll kind of come down from it just as you would, if you were, you know, drinking wine or something, you're going to, uh, there's going to be a point where your peak buzz and then you, you know, kind of come down from that. Um, not that I want to compare psilocybin to drinking wine, not at all. Just trying to give an example of that. But as you're sort of coming down from your psilocybin experience, it's a great idea to start integration right away. Integration is another term used in the psychedelic industry, and that is really rooted in learning from your what you just learned, what you experienced during your journey, whatever came up for you. You want to start learning from that and perhaps implementing behavior change almost right away. So integration can take many forms. That might be journaling, right? writing down what came up for you, what, what insights you had. You may not have all the insights right away. It's just more writing down what you experienced with your journey. Another option for integration is working with a psychedelic assisted therapist. You may already be in a room with a psychedelic assisted therapist for your actual journey. And then you would start a little bit of integration right away. And then of course you may return for subsequent sessions with your therapist. Integration can also take shape in a what's called an integration circle. There are lots of integration circles out there, either in person and online. And that's really, you know, being with other people, again, either virtually or in person who've done a, a journey as well, 
and then being able to talk through your experience with them because they may help they may be maybe able to help you understand what came up for you um, help you navigate that a little bit you know that's just really really important so set and setting and integration so you say that every journey is different even within the same person the experience that you have at different times may vary but there are some commonalities to the use of psilocybin. This, one of the things that struck me uh, particularly alluring perhaps for a lot of people is the sense of connectedness. Um, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that if you would. Sure, yeah. So there is a term for this, this increased connectedness. It's called oceanic boundlessness. I, and I believe it was a Freudian term along with a, uh, a French mystic, and I can't think of the names off the top of my head, but this term came up well before psychedelics. It's used as a term for mystical experiences, which are a little bit more common in religious contexts. But in psilocybin, we tend to have what are called mystical experiences as well. And these are just, you know, magical moments during your journey that, that feel like they can't be explained. That might be the easiest way to describe it. But oceanic boundlessness is um, a very mystical experience in that you feel really connected to either those people around you or to the world at large, just the entire universe. And so instead of feeling very alone in this world, which, which we're all prone to do, you feel very connected and very supported. So for example, during my journey, um, I felt a lot of this connectivity, what happened for me, and again, it's going to be different for everybody, and I can explain why it's different for everybody, but the thing I felt that was so cool was as if I were connected by um, threads of light to everyone that I know and love and who loves me back, and I could almost feel that love like, coming, I mean, I could feel that love coming towards me, and I felt myself sending love out to these people, and I, that's so important because I think in you know, general life, we may know we have a really good support system, like friends and family, or we may know we have a support system in general, but to really feel that support system and feel held in this world is something so magical, it's, it's hard to put into words. So that's essentially what oceanic boundlessness is, is that that connectivity and feeling less alone and feeling more connected. And part of the reason that that happens is that psilocybin does something to what's called our default mode network. So our default mode network is a network of brain regions that work together to sort of make up our sense of self. It's concerned with our memories, also concerned with our, um, our, our ability to empathize or empathy in general. So understanding other people. And what happens is when you take psilocybin, there something happens with that default mode network where areas that are normally connected disconnect and then areas that um, that that normally aren't connected connect. So there's a, this connectivity change and there's an element of that that's called ego death. And so ego death is essentially a little bit of your, a loss of sense of self. Now that sounds a little scary when I say that, oh, you might experience ego death and not know who you are. That, that would be much more on a really high dose, but in a moderate dose of psilocybin, so something like 2.5, 3, 3.5 grams, you may have elements of ego death that are just this opening up to this oceanic boundlessness where again you're less interest you're less focused on yourself or less like locked in your mind there and more connected to the outside world in terms of that you know oceanic boundlessness so just an example of the one of the brilliant effects of psilocybin 
And then in talking about why, why is a psilocybin journey different for everybody? Well, um, there's this great model to sort of explain that is it's really that psilocybin is going to work with already work on in your mind what you need to work on. So there's a great quote from one of the people that I interviewed and she said in the book, and she said, you won't get the trip you want. You, you get the trip that you need in terms of tripping. And that is so true. And again, that's simply because psilocybin is working on things that are already in your mind that you need to work on. And that's a, an abstract concept. But to explain that, there's this great model in scientific research called the Rebus model. And that stands for Relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics. And what researchers are saying, and the specific researchers that came up with this are Robin, Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris and Dr. Carl J. Friston. And what they are saying is that in normal states of consciousness, our brains are super rigid. Our pathways of thinking about um, our own identities, so how, what we think about ourselves and how the world around us operates become very rigid. When we're kids, that's all super flexible because we haven't formed our identities yet. But again, in adulthood, that becomes much more rigid and locked in place. And it's really hard to change a negative belief pattern. So if you have social anxiety, it's hard to convince yourself that, no, you are fine in social settings. You do a great job. People tend to like you. They keep inviting you back to things, right? It's hard to convince yourself of that. And the way that they explain this with that Rebus model is that if you think of your brain in normal states of consciousness as almost like a frozen pond, and then if you think of changing a belief, let's take a new belief and we're going to change it, and, and we think of that as a rock. If we drop it on that frozen pond in that normal state of consciousness, it doesn't gain entry into the brain, right? It just makes a crack on the ice and doesn't really do anything. But when we are on a psychedelic, it's like as if our pond, our brain becomes thawed. Now, if you take the, a new belief in the form of a rock and drop it in, it gains entry and it causes a ripple effect. So essentially what psilocybin helps us do is it relaxes those beliefs that tend to have a lot of power over us. And these are often negative beliefs. So things like, again, um, you know, it could be social anxiety issues. It could be a body image issue. And it's really hard to try to change those. But psilocybin relaxes that belief and allows the um, it gives power to beliefs that you're trying to gain entry into your brain. And this all happens very almost naturally. It's not like you have to do anything other than just to sit there and surrender to the experience. You also talk about the effect that it has on your vision. What is that like? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of visuals that can come up in terms of you might see some geometric patterns or um, you might experience colors really vividly. I certainly did. Like the moth on the tree bark was extremely green. You might see really vivid textures. So again, going back to the moth on the tree bark, the bark was like super textury for me. Another thing that happened is it felt like the couch was breathing next to me when I was inside. So things like that can happen. Um, again, geometric patterns, or you might see almost like out, the outlines of objects kind of move or pulsate. These are all normal things that happen during a psychedelic session, and um, but they can be a little anxiety provoking if you aren't uh, prepared for that. The other thing that people can experience is something called synesthesia, which is a hard word to say. But it's essentially experiencing one sense through another. So maybe you see the color yellow and you taste um, salt or something like that, you know, again, experiencing one sense through another. 
is, is again called synesthesia and that can come up as well. You also talk about the sense of being less coordinated or feeling dizzy. Yeah, so that can happen as well, where, um, you know, you may feel uh, a little more klutzy when you're on psilocybin, especially during that that peak. And that has to do with the, the network brain changes and things like that. So you just want to be careful about what's around you and um, that you're in a safe environment, uh, you know, you know, still be able to walk and function for the most part. Unless you're on an extremely high dose, you may not. But it's that's, again, why it's great to have someone to serve as your trip sitter so that you feel, uh, you know, very safe and contained. And if anything were to come up for you, someone can help you navigate getting to the bathroom or whatever. How important are the cardiovascular and body temperature changes that you might experience during a journey? Yeah, I think that's a good safety consideration is if you have a heart condition or have high blood pressure or anything like that, that you may want to, rather than doing a do-it-yourself journey, you would want to be with a medical professional. So I'm not a doctor and I can't give people medical advice, but I certainly would recommend working with a medical professional in doing your psilocybin journey if that's possible, if you have a heart condition at all or, you know, any, any cardiovascular condition like elevated blood pressure things like that. And that's just simply for safety purposes in that, you know, you don't want to exacerbate a heart condition. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, that you can't do psilocybin, uh, but it's a, it's a reason to pause and think about the safest way for you to do that. Now there may be some heart conditions that completely preclude you from doing that. It's just a safety consideration. Hello, are you still there? Oh, uh, yep. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, you also talk about the gut-brain axis and the possible effects in your gastrointestinal system from taking psilocybin. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So we most of our serotonin receptors, I think it's something like 90% of them are actually in our gut. And so when we use psilocybin, it could create some, a little bit of nausea or stomach discomfort. You know, most people report, not, I shouldn't say most people, but those who report stomach discomfort are usually reporting some type of nausea. Now there are potential ways to get around that. Not everyone experiences nausea. I think what can be, um, can create a little nausea is if you eat the mushroom itself. Uh, that that's because the mushroom cell wall of the psilocybin mushrooms, uh, they there it tends to be rather tough and it's hard to digest, and so that can create nausea itself. And then, um, but if you many people are using psilocybin in the form of like a tea, or taking it in um, chocolate form or um, capsule form where it's ground into a powder, it's ground into a powder to get into a um, a chocolate as well. But people tend to find less nausea when they do something like that. There's also a um, formula called a lemon tech, and I, I can't remember all the logistics of that, but the lemon tech is, is using psilocybin um, with citrus, usually in the form of a tea, and that can help to reduce some of that nausea. It's potentially, it potentially has to do with the way that we digest all of those things together. So it's just something to be aware of that you may become a little nauseous. Not everyone experiences nausea. I did not, and I have a very weak stomach, so I was expecting to. 
It makes me think of this idea that most mushrooms need to be cooked before you eat them so that they don't cause you problems. So it sounds a little bit like that's what you have here. Absolutely. I think that, that that's the case, is that a lot of mushrooms we digest a much better if they're in powder form or if they are cooked in our food and because that helps to break down that mushroom cell wall and again so I think if we if we just think about how we want to ingest the psilocybin that can help. What about dosing that um, you talk in the book about the, the idea that you develop a tolerance if you consume them on a regular basis, it, it, you become tolerant of the mushrooms so that you should, uh, uh, I think you talked about stacking a few minutes ago and the other one where you take them intermittently. Tell us a little bit about that whole concept, if you would. Sure, yeah. So with dosing, there are different doses. A heroic dose would be something like five grams. I would not recommend that for beginners. A sort of moderate dose would be anywhere from, you know, two to 3.5, four grams. Um, four grams, you're getting a little high um, in terms of dosage. And then there is something called a microdose, and a microdose is really like a tenth of a gram. And so it's a much smaller dose. It could be a tenth up to a half of a gram, um, really. And so with a microdose, you're not going to necessarily have visuals or have like a trip effect. You would probably not really realize that you even took it other than taking the edge off the day. And so people microdose regularly and they follow, they typically follow a protocol. And again, the two most popular out there would be the Fatimin protocol and the Stamets stack. The Stamets stack involves also taking lion's mane, which is a functional mushroom or a medicinal mushroom. It doesn't have psychedelic effects and also niacin. So that's why it's called the stack, but there are different, there are logistics to using that and I incorporate some of those in the book and the Fatiman protocol is just psilocybin, but eat, both protocols involve taking psilocybin for um, like a, like it might be a few days on or a few days off and then, um, and then continuing the process or it might be that you're on it for several weeks in a row and then abstaining for a little bit. And the reason that you have these times where you abstain from the microdose is for that that tolerance buildup. You will build up a tolerance and over time need more of a dose for the same microdosing effect. So that's why people tend to abstain for a little bit. But again, it also just helps you when you take a break from it, that helps you toward, to assess whether you need to continue or how you're doing, if any symptoms have changed and that sort of thing. And then in terms of a larger dose, if you're doing like a moderate dose or heroic dose, Again, you could build up a tolerance if you're continuing, if you're doing these doses all the time. Now, people don't typically use magic mushrooms that consistently, regularly in a larger dose format. So again, you would want to think about doing it every maybe once a quarter, you know, twice a year, um, once once a year, that it's spaced out so that you don't build up that tolerance. Plus, if you were doing large doses all the time, you wouldn't be able to function in normal everyday life, you know. Are you still there? Yep. I, okay. okay, I'm still getting the hang of this microphone. Sorry about that. That's all right. No, just make it sure. No, thank you for calling that because I was asking you the question with the microphone muted. Oh. <laughs> if the microdoses don't have much of an effect, then why take the microdose? What is the point of the microdosing? 
Yeah. So it, um, even though it doesn't have the effect of the same effects that we tend to have when we are tripping, um, it does have beneficial effects for anxiety, depression, um, just sort of relaxation, maybe focus if you, if you tend to lose focus while you're doing tasks. So that's why people microdose. It just doesn't have the same effect as if you are doing a more of a macro dose. And on the macro dose, you talk about the heroic dose in the trip as something that might be life changing, that might be in the category of a mystical experience. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think both a macro dose and a micro dose could lead to these mystical experiences, or I'm sorry, a, a macro dose and a heroic dose could lead to these mystical experiences. So I've never done a heroic dose of, of five, you know, five grams but I have done about 3.5 and I had a mystical experience during that time. So just, it's going to depend on the person in terms of your dosage that works for you to, to get that mystical experience. There is a danger that the effects of your journey might linger temporarily and that if you have a bad trip, that could be a bad thing. How do you cope with that risk? Yeah, so it, it sounds like it's pretty rare in terms of what it's called hallucinogenic persisting perception disorder. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this it's called HPPD, I believe. It, that can happen with cannabis. It can happen with other psychedelics. Um, but it, it's not a super common thing. And uh, what may happen is just you may have some visuals that continue to last. So I think there's a low risk of that. I think if you follow the set setting and integration processes pretty well, uh, that, that the risk of that happening is low. And we really just need more research on that. It, it's something, again, that can happen with cannabis, and we don't hear about it that often with cannabis. I think that the drug where it's a little bit more common might be with LSD, which is acid. Um, so there's a study out there that looked at people who've had HPPD and, you know, what drug did they take? Very few took psilocybin and had that experience. So I certainly don't want to scare people with that. And the other part, what was the other part of your question? I apologize. Oh, the bad trip. I'm sorry. Okay. So the bad trip situation. Um, so researchers are actually trying to call it more of a challenging trip rather than a bad trip. And the reason for that is that even if we have a challenging experience during our journeys, often people in, in scientific literature will report that even though they had a difficult or bad journey, that it was still one of the most profound experiences of their lives. So what can happen is that um, suddenly the, the psilocybin is you know, highly activated in your brain. You may be reaching that peak dose and some anxiety may cut, came up, come up. And that's simply because the you may be forced to like, I shouldn't say forced, but you may be moving into focusing on a trauma and that's okay because when we view trauma under psychedelics, we have what's called the helioscope effect. And this was a concept uh, developed by Dr. Gregor Hassler, I believe. And um, what he's describing is, so a helioscope is an instrument for looking at the sun. That's what scientists use to look at the sun. And it gives us the safe option of looking at something. And so we have this helioscope effect in psychedelics as well, where we're able to view trauma without essentially the trauma triggering us. 
But when it first starts to come up, you may have some anxiety when your mind is trying to look at this trauma and you're somebody who typically avoids looking at this trauma. So that can happen and it can be very anxiety provoking. One of the best things that you can do, according to science, is that to just surrender to the experience. And this happened for me during one of my journeys. I did have a lot of anxiety crop up as it was forcing, as the mushroom was essentially forcing me to view something that I didn't want to focus on. And once I surrendered to the experience, it was fine. Like you, you'll be okay. And then I, on the other side of that, I had a lot of euphoria and relaxation and peace. But when you're viewing those traumas on psilocybin, you're viewing them from that safe distance, looking through the helioscope, so to, so to speak. And you're also able to view your traumas from a new lens and reprocess them. And so that is one of the reasons why psilocybin can be so effective for something like PTSD, uh, major depression, depression, anxiety, and things like that. So if anything difficult does come up for you, try to sit with it. Keep yourself calm if you can. Engage your trip sitter if you need to, to help keep you calm in whatever way. And just relax into it and you will be okay on the other side. Because it will, it's it's never going to be, that part of it's not going to be persisting. You know, it's temporary. So if you can remind yourself of that, that can also help. But again, people report difficult experiences as also being extremely profound. And I would say that, that even though I had that difficult part of my journey, it was one of the most um, profound experiences of my life. So I'm hearing two different concepts one is that it's just a journey and you come back and in your you're in your safe space and everything is going to be back to normal but at the same time I'm hearing that it's being used to treat serious conditions like PTSD and depression and that implies a change in who you are or your condition help us understand the those two yeah okay so great question so um yeah, so we do have some brain changes that are lasting, that neuroplasticity. So like your brain is just sort of flowering after a psychedelic journey. And then if we think back to also the Rebus model that I described, where we're adding a new belief into your brain, it will stick. So when we when we do when we are able to get that new belief in and then we return to our normal state of consciousness, uh, that new belief can Dick. And then also that neuroplasticity is happening where our brain is sort of flowering. And so if we can start to implement behavior change during that time that can help us, you know, lean into this new belief that we have and then also incorporate behavior change. So let's say you had a shopping addiction or something like that and you were trying to change your behaviors around that. During your journey, you might think about this sort of thing and work on it and what like what is driving you to to obsessively shop. Then that increased period of neuroplasticity after your journey, when your brain returns to its normal state of consciousness, you can start to implement that behavior change of like abstaining from online shopping or whatever it is that you're doing and have a little bit more success with it. So it's something that's really great for um, alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder, smoking cessation. There's research that's coming out to support this. What costs are involved what yeah how do we even look at that is it by the microdose is it by the whole finding a sitter um, help us understand what costs are involved in the psilocybin itself and anything else that you require in order to have that that experience or that journey of 
course. Yeah. So it's going to vary um, depending on what you're doing. So psychedelic assisted therapy, um, you, you likely will have to pay out of pocket. I think that will change over time, but not, not initially, you know, in terms of as we get legality for um, psilocybin that I think insurance companies will eventually start reimbursing people for that. But for the most part, you're going to be paying out of pocket. And same thing if you're going to a retreat, like maybe you're going to a country where it is legalized or decriminalized and you're doing a retreat there. So you'd have your travel costs, whatever the cost of the retreat is. Personally, I used a guide and, um, you know, I had to pay him a fee for his services. And, you know, you may, if you're, if you're hiring like a professional trip sitter, you would have to pay for that as well. And, um, you know, all of that. So it's going to vary. And I can't really give a, a ballpark on that. You know, some people might be growing their own mushrooms and saving costs that way. There are other ways to save costs as well. But again, the cost involved will vary across the board. But, you know, in terms of psychedelic assisted therapy, you may be paying a few thousand dollars. Same thing with hiring a guide, stuff like that. But again, it will vary across the board. What is the dose of, I'm sorry, what is the price of a microdose or a, I think you said they come in edibles. Uh, what kind of price ranges are we looking at? Oh, again, it will it will vary across the board. Um, so you know, you might I would say that it's on par with buying cannabis. So that's probably the easiest way to share it. You know, you might spend if you're buying a pack of microdoses, you might spend like eighty dollars, just like you would when you're buying some gummies. Depending on where you are, it's going to be different state to state. And, um, you know, where you're, I mean, if you're in a different country and all of that. So it's really, again, really pricing is really hard to, to give a ballpark just because it's going to be so wildly different from place to place. So what, let me put it this way, what is the most affordable psilocybin dose or microdose that you have come across? Um, see again really really hard to say i like i buy my microdoses from my guide he's a you know um uh indigenous person who's a sort of a shaman in this and uh he you know i i pay about a hundred dollars a bottle for that and a bottle is what a hundred pills or a 30 days uh, no, about, about 30 pills so um you know lasting more than a month slightly more than a month if you're microdosing who are the ideal candidates for psilocybin use? And we're talking in general, but of course, within the context of your book, which is a handbook for women. So what can you tell us about who are the people who are listening to our conversation or reading your book who should give serious consideration to psilocybin? I think that if you've been, uh, I mean, I think most people are candidates unless there's a safety consideration that, that would preclude you. And some of those things might be a heart condition or even a mood disorder. Um, so uh, it can be slightly destabilizing when you're on psilocybin. And um, so it may exacerbate a mood disorder. Now, that doesn't mean that people with mood disorders can't use psilocybin. It's just more that you wouldn't want to necessarily do a do-it-yourself journey. You'd want to work with a medical professional. So outside of those safety concerns, I think that most people are candidates for using psilocybin. I am especially, I'm especially excited about women using psilocybin because I see so much potential there for helping with depression, anxiety, PTSD, resolving some traumas, 
all of these things and women are disproportionately affected by these things. So I think they are certainly ideal candidates. And especially if you've tried other therapies that just aren't helping you. So you've, you've been on SSRIs, you've been in therapy and things are just not coming together. Now that doesn't mean that you, that you can't just try psilocybin if you haven't tried these other methods, you certainly can, uh, you know? So it's hard to say who's the ideal candidate. I think most people are, it's just outside of those safety concerns that you wanna consider. What about mental health issues? Uh, are people who had are on the spectrum I think is the correct way to say it now the autism spectrum mm-hmm. uh, people who are bipolar have schizophrenia any kind of mental health issues are they compatible with psilocybin because going on a journey when you're already um, having some mental health issues might be particularly challenging yes it could be very challenging and that is why if there's anyone that has a mental health condition, I would recommend doing, um, if you're, if you are planning on doing a psilocybin session to work with a psychedelic assisted therapist, somebody who's, you know, really well versed in administering psilocybin, sitting with someone during a journey, helping to navigate difficult experiences, things like that. That's what I would recommend if you, if you do have a mental health condition, because again, uh, there are certain mental health conditions that can, when you're on psilocybin, the feeling can be very destabilizing and anxiety provoking. What about the long-term effects? We know that humans have been using psilocybin for a long time, but there aren't very many studies that look at this repeated exposure and perhaps recreational on the part of some people of psilocybin. What can you tell us about what effects psilocybin might have for people who use it, as you have suggested several times a year, every quarter, long term after, say, five years or 10 years, or if you're planning on having children, what effects that might have on your body or your personality? Sure. I don't think that it's affecting fertility negatively. If anything, it may affect fertility um, in a beneficial way. And then long-term use, um, again, we, we do need more studies on that, but we do have historical, indig- historically, we have indigenous wisdom to lean on or indigenous practices to lean on. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of negative effects from using it over and over again. It's not like something like smoking, where the more you smoke, the worse off you are. It's, it's not like that at all. And so it's, I would say it's generally safe to use long-term. There is some concern with microdosing in terms of doing that too often where it, there's potential for uh, a heart issue, um, like an, an arrhythmia to develop. So that is again, why it's really great idea if you are microdosing to um, take washout periods where you're not using continuously, you're taking breaks from it and things like that. But again, we need more research on all of that. Other than reading your book, what suggestions would you share with our listeners who want to learn more about psilocybin and um, the possibility of using it? Absolutely. Great question. So I think we we have some good communities out there that are starting to really educate people. One of those is called Moms on Mushrooms or M-O-M. 
and that's run by Tracy T. And it really is this community of moms who are advocating for mushroom use and uh, and then and just educational components around that. So they have, you know, Moms on Mushrooms has classes, they have meetings, they have, you know, virtual in and in-person events. It could be very beneficial for people for learning more. And then another uh, organization out there is called the Flourish Academy. And um, that was, I mean, that is an educational resource for people, a lot of community activities as well. So I highly recommend people look into that. Jennifer, thank you for joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And to our audience, you have been listening to Jennifer Chesick, who is author of the Psilocybin Handbook for Women, How Magic Mushrooms, Psychedelic Therapy, and Microdosing Can Benefit Your Mental, Physical, and Spiritual Health, who discussed her book and psilocybin. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.